Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. This episode is dedicated to my mom, Barbara Land. And for the first time in our podcast history, we haven't had a show in over two weeks. There's very good reason it has to do with my mom. We're going to get to that a little bit later in the show. But joining me is co-host, lifelong Houston sports junkie and all-around good guy, Stephen Kerr. Did you miss me, Stephen, the last couple of weeks? I sure did, Robert, especially considering, you know, what you have gone through, you and your family. So my uh, my heart, my condolences and prayers go out to you and your family for uh, with your mom. Yeah, I'm going to get into that in a second, but I also want to bring in the newest Korean baseball fan, Greg Lucas. That's right. I've been watching. I've been watching not as early as they're actually on live, but I've been watching the KBO thanks to the VR, and I'm getting to be quite, uh, quite uh, interested in them. Well, Greg, we just lost Jimmy Wynn uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and all of a sudden uh, we, we lost another one of the real legendary Astros, all-time greats this past week at the age of 74 years old, Bob Watson, and he was the outfielder and first baseman for the Astros for many years, died after a four-year battle with kidney disease for 14 of his 19 seasons. He played for the Astros, two-time All-Star, twice finished in the top 20 for MVP. For his career, he hit 295 with an 811 OPS. Very impressive. None other than Hall of Fame pitcher Don Sutton called Bob Watson, quote-unquote, his toughest out. And when he had the chance to hit in the clutch once he left Houston and played for the Yankees, he was extraordinary. In 17 playoff games, he hit 371 with a 968 OPS. In 1988, the Astros then made him the assistant general manager. And in 93, he became just the second African-American GM in baseball history. From there, he went to the Yankees, where he became the first African-American GM to win a World Series. As the instigator for that late 90s Yankees dynasty in 2000, uh, he helped select the USA baseball team that won the gold medal in the Olympics and on and on and on. We're going to get to so much more of that. But, Greg, what comes to mind when you think of Bob Watson, the player? A professional hitter. I think the thing that stands out about Bob, it's that uh, his statistics are not going to say Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame, because he was not a great power hitter. But he was an outstanding hitter for average, and he was an outstanding contact hitter. He uh, you know, he hit doubles, he hit some extra base hits, and he did hit a few home runs, but I think he was over only uh, 20, I think only once in one season in his career. Uh, but he drove in 100 runs a couple of times for the Astros. He had a 295 lifetime batting average, 297, I think, in the National League, which uh, is comparable to what both uh, uh, Biggio and uh, Berkman, uh, not Biggio, Ber- uh, uh, Bagwell and Berkman had right at the top of the list. And he didn't strike out very much. He struck out far less than either of those two. I don't think he struck out more than about 70 or 80 times in one season. 83, I think, was his high. And so uh, he was just a great contact hitter. Uh, he could play the outfield, he could play first base, and he also was a great teammate, as I have been told by many, many who played with him. Greg, when I first started following the Astros in the early 70s, Bob quickly became one of my favorite players. And I, I think one of the reasons that you know just goes beyond his playing ability, he just seemed like such a class guy. I mean, he didn't look in the newspaper and see him getting in trouble or you know getting in arguments with people. It just, he just seemed like he was a genuinely good guy who played the game as hard as anyone. And, you know, they they even tried to make a catcher out of him. It didn't quite pan out. And, of course, he was actually well-known for a a couple of things that were, well, baseball-related, but but also indirectly, 
you know, he was in that uh, Bad News Bears movie. He was the the one that said, let the kids play. So he even got on the big screen. And Roberts, of course, talked about his experiences as a uh, general manager and an executive. So they just, he just a very well-rounded and, to me, just seemed like a very genuine guy. He was. He also was baseball's one millionth uh, run, and that got him a whole bunch of Tootsie Rolls for life, which he gave away because chocolate was not his thing. Uh, but he did that. That was one of his most memorable moments. It's funny you mentioned, though, the uh, a couple of things there, because, Bob, uh, I had a chance to chat with him the last time, probably three years or so, we were doing a, a, a piece on the Astrodome, and uh, they wanted me to interview him with his memories of the Astrodome. And, of course, he did that, and we chatted for a while. Uh, but uh, he he was just a good person. You know, he he did some work with the Astros even recently. He was always involved in their little academies with the youngsters, uh, and he would speak uh, there at the academies. Anytime they wanted him to do something, he'd make an appearance with them. Uh, that was after he'd retired from his, uh, his executive position with Major League Baseball. And, you know, it is tragic that he had to battle this kidney disease for, for four years because his health was not good the last four years. But he'd already battled uh, uh, cancer once before, prostate cancer, when he was with the Yankees, and he survived that. In fact, that's one of the topics, uh, one of the genesis and reasons that uh, he uh, and Russ Pate wrote a book a number of years ago called Survive to Win. They were talking about his battle with that and the fact that uh, he then led the Yankees as general manager to uh, a world championship. But, no, he was uh, – he was just a uh, a really nice man, and any time you lose nice men, uh, you always regret it, and that's, I think, what all Astro fans are feeling. I'm going to go back to that story that you guys mentioned about the one millionth run and the Tootsie Rolls, because that, that's a good story. I want to set that up a little bit later, but uh, you mentioned the Yankees. When Watson was the Astros GM, Greg, they were starting to turn it around at that point. They had the unfortunate luck when the 94 season was cut short because of the strike. Like you said, he he started battling prostate cancer around that time. And then Drayton, at that point, gave him permission to talk to the Yankees about their GM job. And I'm kind of wondering, any idea why Drayton did that? Well, it was going to be a much more high, higher paying job, for one thing. And so he wasn't going to let that stand in his way. But when I interviewed Drayton for one of my books that I did a few years ago, uh, he had nothing but praise for Watson. He he, he thought he was a fine guy. And I, I, I sort of got the impression from that conversation without a direct question. It was in part because uh, it was going to be a great opportunity for Bob. And so Drayton wasn't going to stand in the way. He acquired Tino Martinez and Joe Girardi, who were both huge parts of that incredible Yankees run in the late 90s. I read that despite getting pressure to trade Mariano Rivera when he first became the Yankees GM. He refused to do so, so another good mark on his record. But back to the the millionth run, because I, I, this is just a great story. So May 4th, 1975, Watson scores Major League Baseball's millionth run when he walked, stole second, which is crazy because he only stole 27 career bases. <laughs> and then he scores on a three-run shot by Milt May. The best part of the story, though, he crosses home plate moments before the Reds' Dave Concepcion, who just hit a solo homer against the Braves. And Watson said, you know, quote, I got the third base and our bullpen was right behind third. And the guys were saying, run, run, run. I think I beat Concepcion by like a second and a half. For scoring the millionth run, he got a solid platinum Seiko watch, which he kept but never wore, according to what I read. He got one million pennies, 
and one million Tootsie Rolls, as Greg said. And I love this part of the story. His son Keith said him and his sister were feasting on the Tootsie Rolls for a while. But uh, he said after a week or two, my sister and I were bouncing off the walls and Watson decided the best thing to do was to donate them to the Boys and Girls Club. But we probably went through 10,000 Tootsie Rolls in the first couple of weeks. And uh, like I said, he also donated the pennies to the Boys and Girls Club. But guys, have you ever tried to take a million pennies to your local bank? Doesn't go very well. Doesn't go very well. Oh, goodness. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) My question is, where in the world do you put a million Tootsie Rolls? Where did he put all that stuff? (laughs) It was quite an honor. And I think the funniest part of that really was the fact that uh, he was being encouraged to sprint. Uh, his teammate had hit a home run, and he was encouraged to sprint from second base instead of trot just to, to, to win that honor of being the one millionth run scored in baseball history. So yeah, that's a little side note, but uh, it certainly was uh, was an interesting one. Greg, getting back to uh, the Yankees, when, when he was with the Yankees, if I'm not mistaken, he hired Joe Torre. We know what a, a great run that Joe Torre had with the Yankees as manager. Right, right. He did, and actually he didn't get as much credit uh, in the New York press, as he as he probably deserved, uh, they kept saying, "Oh well, uh, you know, his assistants were doing this and they were doing that, and George was doing this, and and he was kind of a uh, a figurehead." That really wasn't true, but because he wasn't a publicity hound, which was probably a very good move if you're the general manager of a team owned by George Steinbrenner, uh, he didn't get quite the credit that he deserved for what he had accomplished. Uh, during his time with George. But he was like most of the guys that have worked with George. You know, the money was nice. The Being being the general manager of the New York Yankees is a prestigious position, but working under George was also something that can wear on you, and it did on him. And then, uh, Stephen, you mentioned earlier that the Astros tried to make him a catcher. Well, from my understanding, he was a catcher actually at Fremont High School growing up in South Central Los Angeles. And then, you know, right. he had a shoulder injury in the minor leagues, which which hurt his, his throwing. His team, by the way, in high school, won the 1963 L.A. City title. Uh, he was playing with former Astro Willie Crawford and former big league stolen base leader Bobby Tolan. The Astros signed him as a free agent back in 1965. And, Greg, uh, you probably know this, but uh, it, it was one of the better uh, unsigned free agents of all time. Baseball America recently ranked him as the 11th best unsigned free agent in – all of baseball history. I did not know that, uh, that uh, he was that highly ranked. I've got a story, though, uh, about his catching, because this is very interesting. I was working in Honolulu at a radio station when the baseball winter meetings were there one day, and uh, we we were trying to cover them just like anybody else, and I actually called and got Leo DeRocher to talk to me on the phone. He didn't know who I was, and of course I knew who Leo was, but they'd just been a big trade that day. The Astros had made, and it left them uh, somewhat catcherless. I don't have the details of the trade, but this was 1972 winter meetings. And so I got Leo, and I said, okay, now uh, who's going to be your catcher? Because they had dealt whoever had been the catcher, and he says, well, Watson. Watson's going to be our catcher. And I, I was kind of surprised about that. And I said, you know, because I knew of him as a, I knew him mostly as an outfielder at that time. And he could play mostly left field and a little bit of first base. And I didn't know that he was a catcher. He said, no, catcher. He caught in the minor leagues and he's going to be our catcher. He'll give us a good hitting catcher. Well, as history records, during that 1973 season, Bob was a catcher. 
twice. He only caught two games. As it turns out, Leo learned Bob wasn't really a catcher. <laughs> you know, and I think I remember that, Greg, because I was, as we were talking about the catcher, I was going through my mind thinking, you know, I'm almost sure that I watched Bob catch at least a couple of major league games. So that, that actually makes sense. Yeah, it was two. I've got baseball, uh, re- uh, the uh, baseball uh, register open right now, and it was the 1973 season. Yeah, that uh, He right. played uh, 73. Uh, he played some first base. I'm sorry, he played more than two games, but he played mostly left field. Right. And uh, right. and uh, he was an all-star, and he was an MVP. No, he played more than two, but he didn't play very many. And uh, he earned his keep with his bat. He had 312 that year. and and uh, drove in 94 runs, but it wasn't as a catcher. I'll see if I can't find out exactly how many games that was, but that was the only year that he caught any games, and it was uh, it was in 1973 under Leo DeRocher. Yeah, he also encountered some uh, racism early on. I was reading about that. Uh, Watson said, quote, growing up in South Central L.A., we weren't really privy to what folks in the South were going through, so the Astros assigned him as a 19-year-old to the Western Carolinas League, but a long bus ride from the team's spring training base in Cocoa, Florida, to a Salisbury, North Carolina hotel kind of led to he and two African-American teammates who were told to remain on the bus after their teammates got off the bus. They were taken across the tracks to a local black residence because the hotel wouldn't let them stay there. Then later, when Watson homered in his first professional at-bat and won a coupon for a free Salisbury steak dinner, the restaurant wouldn't let him in. Uh, when he called his mom to tell his grandparents, uh, his grandmother said, or when he called home to tell his grandparents, his grandmother said, quote, hey, look, if, if Jackie Robinson went through it, you can go through it. Well, he also had an incident where a white outfielder with him in the outfield that caused him to get injured uh, on a ball that uh, uh, was uh, misplayed intentionally. Uh, but you know what? Uh, that is, I think, what most of us need to be reminded over and over. Jackie Robinson broke the Major League Baseball color line in 1947, but it was into the 60s when players were still having significant problems, particularly in the South, and that was include Houston. Uh, when Houston got in the major leagues, as you may know the story, it was a, about a week before opening day, that they allowed all the hotels to open uh, to all races. And, uh, golly, the American Football League had been playing here for a couple of years, and they didn't have that uh, benefit. Uh, So the South was a different place. It was very tough in spring training, and it was that way until the 60s. And uh, in the North, obviously, there was some bigotry, but there was not the same racist racist, uh, 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 separation as there was for a long, long time. And that, that every player that was playing professional baseball during that period can tell you many stories, just like the one that he, that Bob has. Hmm. Well, guys, I, here's a little bit of personal trivia for you. Bob Watson is actually the reason that I got an F on a school paper when I was, I think, <laughs> fifth or sixth grade. Um, he, I'll set it up for you. And it was actually a substitute teacher who gave me the F, if you can believe that. So we're, we're in class one day, and we're asked to write a paper, and the, the theme of it was supposed to be, think of something that you've always wanted to do if you ever had the chance to do it and write it. And so it was like a one-page paper. So I wrote, I want to sign a contract to play baseball for the Houston Astros so I can be with my favorite player, Bob Watson. 
So I turn the paper in. The teacher looks at it. She comes over to me and she says, this isn't even realistic. You need to rewrite this. Think of something realistic that you can do. And me, of course, being the smart aleck that I was, said, well, you didn't say anything about it being real. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you. Thanks to Bob Watson, I uh, had to rewrite my paper. Yeah, well, I, 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 <laughs> there are some players that, that today played a game that will tell you they wrote things like that, too, only they did make it real and did make it uh, years later. By the way, the catching story on Watson, he caught a total of 10 games over three seasons. So uh, Leo didn't turn him into one. He caught six in that one year that Leo said he was going to be their catcher. Uh, threw 17% of the runners out, and that's hmm. uh, not very good. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> not, not good really. at all. Uh, also, a little fast fact, he was the first player to ever hit for the cycle in both the American and National Leagues. How good was he? Hall of Famer Tom Seaver said, quote, he hits anything, and that's the sign of a good hitter, one who doesn't just hit your mistakes, but hits your good pitches. And Astros manager Dusty Baker said, quote, he was one of the guys that was so kind to me when I first came to the big leagues. One time after a game, he picked me up and talked to me about how to drive in runs. Also, uh, Commissioner Rob Manfred said, I think of all of his accomplishments, the one that sticks out with me was his involvement with the baseball assistance team. Uh, he was crucial to the organization, really growing to a level that it was sustaining itself. Hundreds of people who benefited from that charity owe a debt of gratitude to Bob for the good work he did it in that area, unquote. And, and, and that's, you know, my, maybe his best legacy, Greg. I mean, th- what, what that organization does. Yeah, I mean, he was working with that right up to the end. I mean, he was uh, he was working with that through the Astros right up to the end, the assistance team and also the work with the youth. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Bob uh, Bob really had a plate that was full when you stop and think about it. An outstanding ball player uh, for 19 major league seasons, most of them in Houston, uh, a, a general manager starting in Houston, a general manager of a world championship team with the Yankees, executive position with Major League Baseball, Forget the Olympic team. He was the guiding hand on selecting the players on the Olympic team that won the gold medal. Uh, he he'd done it all. He did it all in his career, and it's just too bad that uh, he didn't have even more years to just enjoy it. Instead, we lost him at the age of seventy-four. Right before he would gonna was going to go into the uh, Astros Hall of Fame, he got elected back on March the fifth. The team uh, hosted, a, a, or he got. I don't know if it was March the fifth, but. That's when the team hosted a ceremony also dedicating the new Bob Watson Education Center at the Astros Youth Academy in Houston. The center will house tutoring and lifestyle programs for 10,000 young people ages 7 to 17 who use the baseball and softball complex each year. And as I said off the top, he battled kidney disease his last few years and was undergoing dialysis several times a week. And in 2018, he said, quote, both my kids offered to donate kidneys to me and I told them both the same thing. I've had a good life and I don't want to take a kidney from young people who really need them and still have their whole lives ahead of them. That would be a very selfish thing to do on my part. And, and I mean, that, that pretty much sums them up right there. It really does. And, and you know, the Hall of Fame, the Astros Hall of Fame induction was supposed to be this year. They had sincerely hoped they could get him in before he died because they knew he was not well. And, of course, as it turns out, because of COVID, it won't even be this year. They're going to induct him next year. But uh, uh, they, 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 in fact, they really, I, I have knowledge of some of the people who did some of the selecting. They really wanted to try to get him in the year before, but they had already, in the first year, they were electing so many people, uh, they just couldn't do it. 
and uh, as we know, Jimmy Wynn made it uh, before he uh, he died, and everyone was happy that that was could be done, and they thought Bob might be able to be with us a little bit longer, but it just wasn't to be. Well, we lost Bob Watson, but it could have been a much worse week for Astros fans. Art Howell, a huge COVID-19 scare a few days ago. He was in ICU, but thankfully the last reports have him out of ICU and safely at home, which is great to hear. And Greg, you've known Art over the years. Just You, you talk about Bob Watson, one of the good guys. Art Howell, just, I've never heard a bad word about Art Howell. You know, the Astros, especially with their 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 core star players have had some really good people in addition. And, and obviously Art Howe, who was uh, uh, an outstanding member of their, their team during the period when they first started to be good 1980 and then up in the, through the eighties. Uh, and then of course, a manager uh, is one of those. I mean, an outstanding person made Houston his home after his career was over. And he was a lot of places uh, after he left Houston, including managing uh, such notable franchises as the New York Mets and the Oakland A's. Great years with the A's. Never liked the movie, however. Uh, but uh, it uh, it was a great career for Art and a great life. And I'm so glad that it's going to be with us for a long time because he got through the disease that is uh, is taking out a lot of people of his age or older. And uh, uh, he's lived a good life, and he's going to keep living one now that he's back home with Betty, and he will be able to recuperate fully there and uh, – Let's just say we chalked up one against that disease, and that's uh, that's good to say. Greg, just curious, what what have you been doing since uh, the downtime with no sports to watch? And well, I guess until NASCAR came back the other day. Oh, wait a minute! You don't forget the Korean baseball organization. I'm <laughs> well, that's right. You have been watching Korean baseball in the middle of the night. That's, we did talk about that. <laughs> well, I don't watch it in the middle of the night. I I DVR it and I watch it at a, a, a sane hour, but. Uh, I tell you, the thing I've taken from that is that they, they, they make contact very well, don't have a lot of hard throwers. Uh, so uh, even the Americans that are over there doing some pitching are not hard throwing Americans. They're guys whose fastballs are 91, 92, but they have pretty good control. They, they don't waste any time between pitches. Uh, defense is good. Throwing arms uh, below par compared to here, but that kind of goes in with the pitchers. They, they pretty good control for most of them. Games move fairly well. And it's probably on a level of, um, I'd say, double A without the phenom uh, players that some double A teams would have. Just general double A level play. But it's it's pretty good play. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's weird because they have no fans. Stadiums are empty. Uh, they have some nice stadiums, but they're empty. And uh, it's fun to watch. And uh, they, they, uh, they hit the ball where it's pitched a lot better than here. And again, part of that has been fewer strikeouts, but again, lack of real heat is probably the biggest reason for some of that. Uh, fundamentally very strong, and it's uh, it's fun to kind of keep up with them. The thing that I watch as a broadcaster is what they're having to do with broadcasts, because there are no broadcasters in, in Korea. They are all announcing the game from either, well, from their home. Uh, they've got two or three different play-by-play guys that they rotate in, two or three different analysts. And all of them are in their own homes. And uh, so they're watching off a big screen. They're getting their report, their information pregame fed to them from uh, their contacts they do have in Korea. So they have the lineups and they have some little tidbit and some notes. And there's a couple websites they can use to get filled in. But they have a problem with uh, seeing things in the ballpark that, uh, uh, you know, if you're there, you see, like looking in the dugout. They, they, they're, they're kind of handicapped there. They don't know what's going on necessarily in the dugout. 
but uh, for the way they're having to do it, it works. And that's important because I'm told or I've read that that's one of the deals that's going to happen with baseball if it comes back, if the no, no fans in the stand stuff in July, that uh, all the broadcasters will be broadcasting from somewhere else. They won't be there. And uh, so this is kind of a little bit of a test. Not as good, but it can be manageable. And that's about all I can say about it. Yeah, that leads me to the last thing I was going to ask you about, because you talk about baseball actually in the United States. And if the millionaires and billionaires can agree on money, it looks like it's happening in July. What do you think about the current plans? Well, I think the biggest debate is over how much the players are going to get paid. And to me, I'm not a union guy, but to me, it's a no-brainer what they should be paid. They should be paid uh, on a 50-50 revenue split with the owners. And here's why I say that. There will be no tickets sold. There will be no concessions. There will be no uh, ancillary income that is usually part of half a season. They will still get television money, but they usually get all of that. So the point is the owners are going to take a bath if the players don't agree to at least splitting what they do get and uh, then let each team divide who gets what. Uh, the players want a prorated salary as though – everything is going to start with 81 games and they're going to play 81 games and they're going to be just like any other 81 games. Well, it won't be if they don't have any fans. So it's not going to be exactly the same. So a, 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 a prorated, in other words, half season salary is too much for what the, uh, what is going to be generated. And uh, from that standpoint, if that becomes a sticking point, there's no point in playing because the owners have no reason or need to lose millions and millions of dollars while the players end up getting exactly what they would, even though there's much less revenue coming in. That's the argument. Uh, other than that, I'm ready for them to go. I'm ready for them to have two weeks of spring training, expanded roster, let the pitchers get in shape and part in games that count early in the season with larger rosters, and then go. Um, if they have these central, west, and east divisions of 10 teams each, fine. If they want to keep it that way, that's fine. Even I'm not a DH guy, but even I'll, I'm okay with the DH if it's it's going to be inevitable anyway. So go ahead, bring it in now. I am not, and I will never be in favor of ghost runners being put on base to start extra innings. Same never. Yeah, yeah. I would rather have tell them that no game can go more than twelve innings, and if you're still tied after twelve, it's a tie. So what? I don't want yeah. artificial stuff because. Uh, uh, first of all, very few games go past 12 and a tie in a 80 game season or a 162 game season. Those are somewhat nebulous by the time the whole season is played out anyway, because there won't be that many of them, but I do not want ghost runners. I don't want anything artificial that I'm against DH. I'll live with two pieces of good news. Justin Verlander says he's about ready to go. So that that's going to help. And then also, uh, we, we've gone a couple of months and I haven't heard anything about Forrest Whitley either failing a drug test or picking up a, a, an injury uh, while he was in isolation. So that's good, too. Well, it is. But, you know, speaking a guy like him, that's an example. What's going to happen with the minor leagues is never talked about. Uh, we're going to have an expanded big league roster, but there's some minor leagues that will never start. And they're talking about uh, in the future cutting some of these franchises anyway. So, and the, the draft is only going to have uh, five rounds. And after that, is there a reason for someone to sign with the big league uh, franchise when they're only going to get a twenty thousand dollar bonus? 
A lot of things are going to go on in baseball, and the COVID is just kind of exposing some of the plans they already had and giving them an excuse to put them in operation early. So there's going to be a lot to talk about in the next few weeks. They're making a bunch of stuff illegal, Greg, including uh, spitting. You can't, of course, high-five and hug and all that sort of stuff, but making spitting illegal in baseball, Greg, isn't that like telling your one-year-old, you need to use the potty when you go to the bathroom. We're, we're, take, we're taking away your diaper, aren't we? <laughs> I talked about the Korea Baseball Organization. That's the one problem. They aren't supposed to do any of that stuff either, but they, they're never showing shots of the dugout. So I don't know if people are violating any of those rules or not. And if they are, no, there's nothing you can do about it except they don't do it. I mean, uh, you know, you're not going to throw a guy out of the game because he – he spat. You're not going to throw a guy out of the game for a lot of those uh, reasons. You're just going to have to say, please don't do it. And that's about it. Are they going to have virtual fans, do you think? Is there, is there a way to do that 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 makes sense? Can we put TV monitors on the lower deck of Minute Maid Park with like little audio things and the fans that are hardcore, they can you, you'll see them on video monitors and you'll hear them yelling through a speaker or something like that? I'm not sure what they're doing in Korea. I know that you can hear some things in the background, but part of that is because they have those, you know, all those uh, Korean and Japanese games have cheerleaders. And the cheerleaders are there, and there's a guy sometimes beating on a drum there, but uh, there's no one that's reacting to it. And I don't know whether they're running a low-level crowd noise in the background or not. I, I can't quite ever tell, uh, but they don't have any, uh, you know, there are a couple places where they have in the front row, they have posters of fans uh and it's kind of cute they're all cartoonish in fact one is a cat but uh they're looking like they're they're in the front row of the seats and they're watching the game but i think that's just kind of a gimmick that and that's only seen i've only seen that in one ballpark uh so i um i don't know what they're going to do i i don't think um uh you know some say they'll have more crowd miking for the to have more atmosphere but of course then you got to watch out for what some player might say uh, because it'll be a lot easier to be heard. So I'm not sure how they're going to work that out. But I'm, I, again, I, I suggest everyone take a look at one of the KBO games because it'll give you an idea of what it may look like here. And they are basically using all the same uh, restrictions that uh, that we have here for the most part. But I will, you will see them violated here and there. You'll see, you'll see, for instance, uh, an umpire is wearing a mask. And his big nose is sticking out of the top. Well, it, that's not the point. You're supposed to cover your nose and the mouth. Uh, so they've got a mask on, but they're not wearing it right. And uh, so, you know, you can catch little things like that. But uh, watch a KBO game, or at least a few innings, and you'll get a little bit of an idea of what it'll be like here. It'll be dead. And because it's dead, sometimes the announcers are a little lacking in enthusiasm uh, because there's no, no crowd pumping them up. But uh, it's still baseball. Well, I feel like a, a guy wandering through the desert, and I, I think I see an oasis ahead. I think I might see some water as I'm looking for some water badly here, but not sure. Hopefully it comes soon, but looking forward to it. I know, Greg, you are too, and, and I can't thank you enough for joining us for this one. I appreciate it, and uh, hopefully the next time we talk, there will be something being played, even if it's not exactly what we are used to. I'm all for that. Always good to talk to Greg and, and Stephen. One of the things we haven't had a chance to talk about over the last couple of weeks is the Michael Jordan documentary, which, you know, it's just been awesome. This goes into my sports documentary pantheon. It's right up there for me with that five part 30 for 30 on OJ and Stephen on Sunday, 
We learned that Jazz fans will poison your pizza the night before the game, or at least that was news to me. But eh, Rockets fans, not shocked about that one. Uh, that was the very first thing I thought about as well. It did happen in Utah. So, I mean, you know, that's the same place where they, they tried to screw up the Rockets in 94 with the, uh, uh, the malfunctioning clock. No, it didn't malfunction. They just didn't start the clock. Yeah, you know, I was racking my brain, Robert, trying to think. I, I don't think I ever heard that story about the pizza. I, I honestly, I, I mean, if it came out back then, I sure don't remember it. Now, something like that today would probably be. But that's one of the reasons, though, to me, that was the best sports documentary I have ever seen. I mean, they really dug deep. There was there were a lot of candid moments in that 10 part series. And that was one of them. And just the, the way that the, the guys opened up, you know, the, the, the team relationships and all the complications there, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of holding back. And I, I just felt it it was it was not just your same old documentary where you've heard it all before. I mean, yeah, there were a lot of things that you remembered when they happened or that you were reminded of uh, after they talked about it. But there were things in there that I didn't know, and the pizza thing was definitely one of them. Yeah, go figure. It was in Utah. So, yeah, that was the first thing that crossed my mind. Horace Grant, not happy about the documentary I read today. He said uh, it was entertaining, but we know who was there as teammates, that about 90% of it, he says 90% of it, uh, is he's kind of calling BS on as far as the realness. Uh, he, he wasn't happy about Jordan coming after him. Uh, on a couple of things, especially the whole Sam Smith book. And, you know, that there there's never been a, a, a big, you know, hug love, I guess, between those two guys after the Sam Smith. You know, he was trying to, uh, Stephen, he was trying to accuse, um, Jordan was, uh, Grant about the whole uh, Sam Smith deal and, and, and him being the leak for the book, the Jordan rules. But the bottom line is, you know, Sam Smith got it from a couple of different sources and, you know, and the funny thing was that Horace Grant said, you know what snitching on guys when you talk about the cocaine of your teammates back in the in the early 80s like he was doing. <laughs> yeah, and I know we I think we talked about that story in a previous one where, you know, Michael Jordan walks into the hotel room where a bunch of his teammates are and they're just doing the lines and I mean everything in there and Michael turns and walks out. But, yeah, I guess it doesn't surprise me that Horace says that because he. He was disgruntled in some ways, even then. And, of course, went on to the Magic and, and did pretty well, of course, until they got to play Michael and, you know, and that got uh, took care of that. But Yeah, what got you into this documentary, which you never get much of in sports these days, I just love the pure candidness from a superstar athlete. Everybody's guarded and there's PR teams and, you know, they're putting out these documentaries that basically look like long infomercials. Jordan just... Wasn't afraid to sound like a jerk. Maybe he is a jerk. Uh, he's definitely partly a jerk. There's no doubt about that. You know, he says it's about winning. Uh, you, I don't know if you need to do all of that to be a, a winner and be the the athlete and a champion that he was. But, you know, definitely wasn't afraid to call out guys, Stephen and MJ. Looking at the iPad and reacting to smack talk is without a doubt one of my favorite things in sports ever. That was great. Yeah, that was. And and look, the fact that he could be candid in that documentary, I mean, that, that just shows really the guy is comfortable in his own skin. He's not worried about perception. He, he's not worried about what anybody thinks. All he's worried about is winning. I mean, that's that's how it was when he played. 
It didn't matter. No, nothing else mattered. It was about winning and how you're going to win and doing whatever it takes. And and time and time again, you know, he, but he not only pushed his teammates, though, you know, he, he didn't ask his teammates to do anything that he wouldn't do to get that win. The uh, quote unquote pizza game, if you want to call it that now, is just one of many examples that, uh, you know, when it came time and Michael had to push himself further than his limits, you would think they would allow. He did it. But, yeah, there's a guy that is just comfortable in his own skin that he isn't worried about the perception of this documentary. He is who he is. And that's what he's going to say. Well, I, I, I might have just screwed up, Stephen, and what I was talking about before, because, you know, I said maybe he is a jerk and, you know, now I'm on Jordan's list. It's not good. I'm on the list. <laughs> yeah. You better not play one on one on him. Yeah. He's he's going to he, he's going to kill me. He'll hurt you. He'll hurt you. <laughs> he's going to drop a 50 spot. <laughs> oh, man. We, we talked about Bob Watson earlier. Another sports passing this week. Phyllis George dies at the age of 70 for young listeners. She was one of the, you know, just the studio host of the CBS NFL pregame show from the mid 70s to the mid 80s. She was one of the OGs of female sports studio host. I think she was like just about the first one, just a trailblazer for women. Hannah Storm called her the ultimate trailblazer. Do you remember her? Yeah, I certainly do. And, and I remember, you know, of course, as you would expect, there was a lot of controversy. And I'm sure some people felt, well, because she's Miss America and she's, you know, got a name that they just want to put a pretty face in there. But Phyllis George knew what she was talking about. I mean, I think she thought she was I, I don't know that she was one of the greatest. hosts. certainly I'm not saying that. But but I think that she she certainly did blaze a trail. And, you know, in Houston sports back then, we had people like Anita Martini, who was a radio host and a television commentator who ran into all kinds of problems, you know, with uh, the Astros and several of the Houston teams trying to break into the sports business and uh, being in the locker room. There was a lot of talk back then about women being in the locker room or should they be in the locker room. So Phyllis George was, yeah, she was definitely a name that I remember. Uh, I did watch the NFL show back then when she was part of it. And uh, she, of course, had a blood disorder for many, many years. Finally succumbed to it this week. Yeah, she uh, was with Irv Cross, Brent Musburger, and Jimmy the Greek. I mean, that's that that's the ones that I grew up watching on the uh, pregame show. She was also a Texan originally from Denton. She was a former Miss Texas who became Miss America in 1971. It, it didn't end with the NFL either. She did a little of everything. She was a host on the CBS Morning News, was the first lady of Kentucky when she married the governor. Uh, she hosted the comedy show Candid Camera, wrote five books, started a chicken filet business, uh, just a, a little of everything. And if you're Younger, you might remember her for her small role in the movie Meet the Parents. And also, occasionally she would pop up on the NFL Network's A Football Life as kind of a historian. So just just a little bit of everything from her, Stephen. Yeah, very well-rounded indeed. And uh, again, you know, some people could say, well, you know, she's riding on her name and her good looks. But she definitely had talent in a lot of areas, and she made the most of it. All right. Uh, off the top, we, 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 we made a reference to it, but you know, you might be wondering why we've been on hiatus the last couple of weeks earlier in the show. You know, I said this was dedicated to my mother and I just, I don't know where to start, but uh, Stephen, you're well aware. My, my mom got a CT scan back on New Year's Eve. We talked about this between the two of us and they found tumors in her lung, liver and kidneys. She'd lost most of her voice as far back as October. Let's just, just say it's been a rough few months and an extra 
difficult last few weeks, Stephen. She passed away 7.30 p.m. May the 7th, which it was weird. It was four and a half hours before her 78th birthday. We thought, well, she's she's trying to hang on to get to 78. It, it, it just uh, uh, these last few weeks, uh, as anybody that's been through this knows, it, it's not fun. No, it's not, Robert. I'll tell you, that, that really hit me in the gut when you texted me and said that it was her birthday. And of course, it was what, two days before Mother's Day, three days? Um, so it was around Mother's Day, too. And uh, yeah, you know, I, my mom passed away. Next month, it'll be seven years that my mom's been gone. And I just, I, I don't know how you feel about this, Robert, but I can tell you that of of all the deaths I've had in my family, I, I no longer have, I have no more grandparents, no more parents, but of all the deaths, the mom, the, the death of your mom is different. It, it's so it was so different for me. I mean, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't think about her. Uh, yes, of course, I carry on and because that's what she would want me to do. But it's just a totally different feeling. And let me say this. It, those of you who are listening, you need to go on HoustonSportsTalk.net and read Robert's tribute to his mom. It is absolutely one of the most beautiful, heartfelt tributes I have ever read about anybody, much less a mom. And Robert, I know you did it from your heart, and it 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 really. I I mean, after I got through reading it, I never met your mom. I, I never had the privilege of meeting your mom, but I really felt like I knew her pretty well after you got done writing that. So go on to HoustonSportsTalk.net and read that. It, it'll give you some perspective, not not only into Robert's mom specifically, but how we should look at our moms. Do you want me to read it? I can I can read it here. I don't, I don't mind. Go right ahead. All right. Well, let, let me just start off by saying that, uh, you know, it, it's just like most everybody believes their mom is the best mom. And, and as I say in the article, there's no mom scale to judge greatness, but mine was in the upper echelon, most definitely one of a kind. Before we get to the heart of her story, here are some fun facts about her on Earth. On her third birthday, she celebrated with cake and ice cream as the streets of Chicago filled up for VE Day, America's victory in Europe at the end of World War II, as most of you know, and her memory was ridiculously good. Uh, so she had vivid recollections of the ticker tape celebration. Uh, we got a little sports here as well. Uh, as I said in the article, as a nine-year-old growing up in small town Joplin, Missouri, she went to the ballpark to see an 18-year-old phenom named Mickey Mantle play for her hometown minor league team, the Joplin Miners. Her uncle sold Mickey the suit he'd wear the first time he went to New York to play for the Yankees. And Stephen, remind me, we're going to get back. I want to get back to that at the end of this thing. Um, as a high school sophomore, she was in the choir with a girl named Jane Hillhouse. Both Jane's son and mom's son would end up studying journalism at the University of Missouri. They both ended up performing in front of a camera, although one became just slightly more famous. Uh, six years after Jane Hillhouse left high school, she gave birth to Brad Pitt. A few hmm. years later, mom had me, uh, so not the same deal. Uh, mom always extolled her own mom's musical talent. Uh, grandma sang in nightclubs in Chicago and off-Broadway in New York. Uh, she downplayed her own talent, even though she played the piano by ear, which you know I always thought that was extremely impressive. And finally, mom even dated a Dallas Cowboy player, which I just learned in recent years before she met my dad. So that's that's pretty cool, speaking of, of the sports angle, but... Uh, the rest of it, I'm going to just go on and read this kind of word for word. Uh, those are only asides to the real Barbara Land, the woman who was both teacher and mother to hundreds, if not thousands. My sisters and I, of course, refer to her as mom, but the truth is we only had blood rights. 
She spent her last 26 years hosting hundreds of English language foreign exchange students from around the world. She was mother to all of them. It wasn't enough. She'd spent many of her previous 30 years teaching middle school and high school science, both in person and on closed circuit TV. It wasn't enough that at the age of 30 and with a two-year-old son, myself there, she took in her husband's younger sister and two brothers after their mother died suddenly in her mid-40s. It, it wasn't enough. She'd spent uh, much of the, her time raising three children of her own, the last one in high school. Teaching was her love and imparting wisdom was her nature. So being a mom and mentor never stopped. Over her last quarter century, we estimate around 300 exchange students stayed at her house. She made them dinner every night and required that they sit with her at the table at least for an hour or two. She peppered them with the questions that they would need to improve their English, but it just wasn't English they learned from mom. Even though most of them were beyond high school, her students told us she taught them about life. In her final days, one of them told me she was as much a mother to him as his own mom. Another 45 years, her junior said mom was her best friend. Even though mom was beloved, she was as tough as nails in her tiny five foot one pencil thin frame. During the late 60s school integration, she taught at a pretty rough high school in Waco, Texas. She told stories about times they'd pull a gun or knife on her during class. As scared as she might have been in just her mid 20s, she'd strongly tell them to put their weapon down. She'd go around the class and ask them to put their knives and guns in a box, and she'd return them after class. One time, they put a dead mouse in her desk, and when she found it, mom waved it in front of the classroom by its tail and proclaimed, who put this mouse in my desk? Even though mom was divorced with no immediate family within 600 miles and three kids under the age of 12 years old, we never saw an ounce of fear. If you knew her, you knew she commanded respect, and she got it. Aretha-type respect, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. When mom was riddled with tumors in her last few months, she refused treatment. To no one's surprise, she took the constant pain every day and complained very little. We saw her body shivering and shaking. Sometimes she would blurt out, ugh, when she felt a piercing pain. But as always, she was completely fearless and doggedly determined. She worked until the very, very end. In her last few days, we'd ask her if she felt pain as we tried to regulate her medication, and her answer was always a defiant and emphatic no. As a mother, you couldn't ask for a bigger fan. She was me and my sister's one-person PR department. I'm sure all of her friends and relatives grew tired of her singing our praises. My career is the perfect example. She knew I loved sports, and she encouraged me to pursue sports journalism as I was finishing up high school. In fact, it was her idea originally. Four years later, when my very own university journalism counselor discouraged my pursuit of sports journalism, mom never wavered for a second. Even though she didn't watch much sports, she'd call or text excitedly if my favorite teams won or disappointedly if they lost because she knew it meant so much to me. The one area of sports we both bonded on over the years was the Olympics. But of course, she loved the Olympics. It brought the world together. She could be an enigma and a dichotomy, too. As much as she loved learning about the world, she hated leaving her house. The only time she left the state of Texas in her last 30 years was my college graduation. The last time she flew on a plane was for my sister's graduation 16 years ago. But when you asked her about her residence to travel, she said, I don't need to travel. I bring the world to me. 
It's easy to forget that being a teacher is also being a listener. Mom always listened. If my sisters or I mentioned the name of one of our friends or acquaintances, she knew their whole story, even if we'd only mentioned them once or twice. Out of the blue, she might ask us how this friend was doing or if we had heard from that friend. No matter what was happening, she was always there to pick up the phone. As long as we wanted to talk, she would listen. She wasn't just that way with us. She was that way with everybody. She wanted to know everything that was going on, and none of her curiosity or caring was lip service. It was who she was and what she was about. It was no surprise that mom's final job title was homestay host. Those words fit her like a glove. She loved her home and lived in the same one for her last 47 years. She stubbornly refused to let illness move her from it. She definitely put the stay in homestay. The second word is host, and mom was the best at it. She loved having people over and relished in getting everyone together. Her Halloween parties were a yearly event, and she was disappointed if any of her friends or students couldn't make it. It was only fitting she died the night before her birthday and just three days before Mother's Day. That was the week each year that belonged to her. But let me say that even during that big week, she never asked for much or expected much. She lived simply, and as my sister said, as long as I can remember, she has done everything for everyone, always putting herself last, but that is what brings her the greatest joy. Mom fought tooth and nail until her last breath. Did she ever? My sisters and I were witnesses. She was the strongest person we knew. Hours after that last breath, her many students around the world sent her messages wishing her happy birthday. They never forgot her. All mom ever wanted was respect, and she earned it every day she lived. Well, that says it all right there. Wow. Beautiful. Uh, yeah, you Were you going to expound on Mickey Mantle in the suit? Yeah. So my mom, you know, remembers watching Mickey Mantle. And like I said, uh, according to the, the legend or her story, my uncle uh, was the guy that she per he purchased his suit when he went up to New York. But my mom also remembers that, you know, this and this is true. Mickey was a shortstop at that time. And he was peppering the stands because he could not make the throw to first. That's why he's a center fielder, Stephen. <laughs> yep. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> That's a great story. Uh, also, I, I remember she told me that she grew up, you know, she grew up in Joplin, Missouri. So she grew up listening to Harry Carey and Jack Buck. So that'd make anybody uh, a St. Louis Cardinal fan. And also right. she said she went to see uh, a game. I guess it was... Maybe when she was in high school or college and she was at the hotel and they saw Stan Musial. Remember, at that time, you know, it was like you weren't seeing these guys on television every single game. So seeing Stan Musial, Stephen, it was kind of like seeing a, a, a movie star. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because, yeah, they didn't, certainly didn't have the coverage that they have that we have now. So uh, that's quite an accomplishment. I, I am curious, though. My, my curiosity is burning. You did mention she dated a former Dallas Cowboy player, I, I take it, it, it wasn't one of the big stars or you would have mentioned it or are you just not at liberty to talk about it? It was not Don Meredith. Uh, <laughs> the guy that I think, she couldn't remember his name, but she started giving me the whole description of him. And I figured out who it probably was. I think this is the guy it was. His name is Harold Hayes. So you can go look at him up on Wikipedia or on Football hmm. Reference. Okay. But uh, I think... I think if I remember correctly, she said they went out and then she found out that he was either 
married or dating somebody very seriously. And that was the end of that. that, was the, that oh, yeah, I guess that would be a little bit of a problem, wouldn't it? Maybe that's why she can't remember his name. She's blotted his name completely out of her memory. <laughs> You know, the, I, I mentioned in there the, the, the Olympics and, you know, she loved, you know, she was a big fan of figure skating. She was a big fan of gymnastics and, and, and but she was a big fan of the Olympics. She'd watch, she would watch Stephen. I, I don't know if you know, but they've got the Olympic channel. I mean, I've got it on, on Uverse right yeah, now. Yeah, I have it on, I have it on my service also. And it, and it used to be, she never got, she never had cable, but they had it on one of the, uh, I think it was the 39 digital channel and she would watch it all the time. I mean, it wasn't just like, you know, I, you hear a lot of women and they're interested in uh, gym, gymnastics and, and figure skating and that. So she'd watch, she'd watch all of it. She'd watch, you know, bicycling and marathon. She loved all of those, all that stuff. So just like you and I would watch, you know, football all day, Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. I, I mean, she's, she wasn't the type that was, you know, kind of zero in. She was very, you know, sort of short attention span at times, but you know, she did love that channel. And she was really, she told me she was really disappointed when they took it off the, the, the digital channel 39. I, and I just, I got, you know, just one last story about, you know, her love of the Olympics. You know, a few weeks ago I interviewed Camille Adams and I was extremely excited about getting Camille Adams, uh, a Houston Olympian. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen to that interview. Just a lot of fun with her. And after I did the interview with Camille Adams, you know, this was, this was in my mom or her, her final weeks. And, you know, I went over to, I, I was over at her house and, you know, hanging out with her and, and she was in, in serious pain. I mean, it was bad, really bad at that point. And, you know, we, we went into the kitchen, had something to eat. And I said, uh, here, mom, I'll play for you. The Camille Adams interview is this the interview is about 35, 40 minutes long. And she was at the table listening to it, but I could tell Steven, she was in and really bad pain. And finally, I mean, I went over to her and I'm like kind of rubbing on her back, just trying to, to comfort her. Cause she's, you know, I, I know she wanted to listen to it and she just hung in there and her eyes were closed because I think she was just trying to, you know, kind of focus the pain away, but you know, it, it was, it was real bad, but she's, she went through the whole interview before she got up and, and went back to her bedroom to, to lay down. And I, you know, as I asked her, as she got up, I, you know, what did you think of the interview and did you like it? And she said, oh yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was great. And it was, you know, to me, that was, it was, it was one of the better moments, uh, the last uh, few weeks there, because, you know, I, that, that was something that we always shared the, the love of the Olympics. Certainly. And that's just a testament to her character and her strength. And I'm only sorry, I, I never got to meet your mom in person, but, uh, and like I said earlier, I, I, after reading your tribute and then hearing you actually reading it yourself, I definitely feel like I know her. Yeah, it was uh, some weekend. We just got back from the funeral on Saturday up up in uh, Joplin. She she was buried up there where she grew up, born and raised. Um, and so it's it, it's it's bittersweet, but I'm just it's sweet because I'm glad she's out of the the pain. As as you know, Stephen, it's just hard to to watch somebody go through pain month after month after month. Yeah, it is. I've watched both my parents, both my grandparents, uh, just you know dealing with that and it. It definitely puts things in perspective. It it puts life in perspective. It puts sports in perspective, you know, which is something I think this COVID-19 thing is doing. It's putting a lot of things in perspective. And, you know, death or, or watching someone dying tends to do that for you. Just it, it makes you realize really what is important. Well, thank you again, Mom. And, and I love you. And just uh, thank everybody out there for 
your continued support of the podcast and want to remind listeners that if you're looking for something to take away from all of these current difficulties that we're, we're going through with the isolation and everything, listen to our throwback Thursday podcast. Haven't had them in the last couple of weeks, but they're, they're going to come back. I, I hope to have one this Thursday. So look for that. Lots of fun conversations that we've had from our past seven years about Houston sports history. So these are, these are conversations you can listen to whenever um, because it's about Houston sports history. And we'd definitely love your feedback questions or even topics that you want us to discuss messages through Twitter, Facebook, or email info at Houston sports talk.net. And as we're saying these days, just stay healthy and stay safe, everybody. You're listening to Houston sports talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.